Good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. Good morning. It is uh, no wonder that so many films have been made on uh, this, the book of Exodus because it is such an engaging narrative that pulls us in in a very powerful way. Now, here's the scene that we heard from today. Uh, the sun is beating down on an arid landscape, and men and women are laboring intensely in the sun, building storehouses for Pharaoh brick by brick for this, this tyrant who reigns over them. And small groups of enforcers stand around cracking their whips and shouting at the enslaved people to to pick up the pace, to get back to work, to fix their mistakes. And these sweat-drenched, demoralized workers uh, struggle to get through the end of the day without collapsing under the oppression of this labor regime that they've been placed under. And the light fades on this scene, and we feel the weight of the Israelites under Egypt. And we think... Where is God, and how will his purposes be worked out? Then it gets worse. Next scene, in his neurotic fear and his obsession with power, the Pharaoh king instructs the Hebrew midwives to kill any male children born to the Israelites. He fears that the male children, these baby boys, will grow up into strong men who will eventually one day overpower him and escape from under his oppressive regime. And again, the story urges us to ask, where is God and what will he do about this? Then the story zooms in on two characters, two Hebrew midwives, one named Shipra and the other Pua. And they hear Pharaoh's deadly instructions. And here's what the story tells us about their response. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. These two ordinary women, working as midwives, by no means a prestigious career or position in their culture, have such a reverence for the living God, who is the author of life, that they refuse to take life into their own hands, and they choose not to conform to the Pharaoh's life-destroying mandate. The story tells us that because of their righteous disobedience, they are blessed by God, and the Israelites continue to multiply. And out of that multiplication of Israelite boys, we meet a baby named Moses, who will be named Moses. And through several more ordinary people, this baby is protected and ends up being raised in the regal halls of Egypt. And by what could only be the providential hand of Yahweh, this baby grows up to be a man who will himself confront the wicked king on behalf of his people and lead them from slavery into freedom. And the story of God's saving works in history continues as the people from whom the Savior of the world will eventually come escape eradication. Here's what the story shows us God works out his purposes through ordinary people, through ordinary people who are willing and available for him, who are willing and available to be used by his purposes. It also tells us this. Don't underestimate how God might use you for his purposes. These midwives probably never could have foresaw that through the people that they end up contributing to their salvation, through these people, the Savior of the world would come. But the story also raises a question for us today, and that's this. What does it look like for a follower of Jesus, for us today, to be willing and available to God? 
to be used for his purposes? This is a question we cannot ignore because we are the church. We are the people who Jesus says to, just as the Father sent me, so I send you. He has called us in. We are wrapped up in God's very mission in this world, in our own day and age. St. Paul's words in Romans 12 today actually speak quite powerfully to this question about what it means to be willing and available, what it looks like to be willing and available to be God's people in the world, for what it looks like to be available for his purposes, what, what things that we need to do and think about to be those sort of people. If you want to follow along in your bulletin, we're going to be working a little bit through Romans 12 again. We're dipping back into Romans after our uh, summer sermon series because it just speaks so perfectly to this text today. Paul starts and he says this, I appeal to you, therefore. Now, let's just stop there for a second. Therefore, which means this, something has just, something has preceded this. Paul is saying, in light of all that I have just said before this, this ought to be your response, right? This is a turning point in the book of Romans. Paul, as we know from our summer series, has gone on and on about the grace of God that has taken Jew and Gentile and united us into one body, that we could not earn our salvation uh, on our own. There was nothing we could do about our separation from God. But he said this, God proved his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now he goes on and elaborates on this and then he gets to this turning point in his book and he says, I appeal to you, therefore, in light of this, And he goes on. Now, keep in mind, Paul's saying, therefore, that this is how you are to respond to what God has done. He's saying this, this isn't about getting God's attention. What I'm about to say to you isn't about, there aren't instructions for getting God's attention. You see, you already, God already gave you his intention before you were even looking for it in his son, Jesus, right? So he's saying, in light of that. This is actually about saying yes to his claim on our lives, what that looks like. He goes on and he says, Present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So in light of what God has done for you, make yourself totally available to him. Now, someone has said that the problem with living sacrifices is that they keep jumping off the altar. Uh, it's, it's funny, but it is very true because it's so, it takes such great effort. It takes such great effort to be a living sacrifice, to give ourselves in total submission to the Holy Spirit, to hand ourselves entirely over to God. But Paul reminds us that God first entirely handed himself over to us on the cross. And the only proper response then is to hand ourselves back over to him. So here's a question. Here's a challenge question that I think this text phrases. Do you start each day by telling God that you are willing and available to be used by him? Every day. Again, we see the importance of starting our mornings in prayerful communion with the Lord who has the desire to use us for his purposes in our everyday lives. We ordinary people. Now, Paul goes on and says this, Do not be conformed to this world. Uh, The J.B. Phillips translation of the Bible, which is kind of a loose paraphrase translation, really gets at this idea beautifully. And J.B. Phillips translates it like this. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. You see, the midwives are a good example of this. They said no to evil, even when it endangered their lives. They could have lost their lives for their disobedience to Pharaoh. But they didn't. They refuse to conform. They refuse to conform to his edict. Now, here's an example of what this nonconformity might look like today for us. It might translate into today's world like this. 
So the world we live in, uh, which we are always being asked to conform to, uh, tells us that self-care is best achieved um, in consumerism. Self-care is best achieved in consumerism. The world tells us that you will find uh, rest and peace by purchasing things, by buying new stuff, by pursuing thrills and ecstatic experiences, by pursuing whatever maximizes pleasure, right? That is the way the world tells you to take care of yourself. And I, I don't know about, about you, but moment, moment of honesty, I find myself uh, clicking that add to cart button on Amazon more often than I'd like to admit. And it's often for things that I don't need, right? The world's stories impress upon us. Now, we could think of all sorts of examples about what nonconformity could look like. What might it look like to, to commit to, uh, take, to, to calculating the amount of money that we spend on ourselves every month and saying, I'm going to commit a portion to this from here on out to something for others who are in need? Or what would it look like to uh, add up the hours that we binge watch Netflix one month and say, I'm actually going to take a portion of this time from here on out and I'm going to commit that time to prayer and to study and to service to others, right? There are so many different things we could do. Or nonconformity could simply be refusing to support companies that treat their employees unjustly. It could mean saying no to that last drink that would impair our ability to drive. It could really just be refusing to get the last word in in an argument. It could be leaving a conversation that you know has devolved into gossip. There are countless ways to not be squeezed into the mold of the world, and we should not underestimate how God might use us for his purposes when we do just that. Nonconformity. Paul goes on to say, Paul goes on to say this, Be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God. Now, this is not just an external uh, behavior makeover or something like that or uh, trying to gain as much knowledge as possible. That's not what it is. What he means by the renewing of the mind is actually a complete interchange of will and desires and affections that can only be brought about by the Holy Spirit's work. It's placing ourselves before him and asking him to do that work in us. Change my desires and make them more for you, God, and for your purposes in the world. And the result of that, the result of allowing the Holy Spirit to do that work is changed behavior and practices. Well, how do I renew my mind, you ask, right? What, 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 what's a practical way to renew my mind? Well, I can think of one obvious one, and you might get sick of he- hearing me say this, but it's this, it's engaging God's word. It's, it's reading it, studying it, uh, inwardly digesting it, as one of our colleagues say, asking questions of it, letting it ask questions of you. Seeking to know more about the character and ways of the God who wants to work out his purposes through you. Is that a routine practice for you? Because trying to live a Christian life without ever engaging scripture is like trying to complete a marathon without drinking any water. It's, it's impossible and it will drain us of life. Now, here's why this is so important. I want to beat on this for a minute because it's so important. Here's why engaging God's word is so important. It's not just to gain facts about what we are supposed to do. Here's how I think it works. There are uh, so many stories and narratives in the world, right? There are so many narratives that the world is telling us about who we should be and how we should live, right? Um, Stories profoundly shape who we are, right? Because they draw us into them and they make us think about the world in a particular way. And we're surrounded by stories in the world that tell us things like we're the center of the universe, um, to climb to the top no matter what it takes, uh, to, to, that anything is permissible so long as no one gets hurt, right? These are the sort of narratives, some of the narratives in the world that shape us, right? But the Bible is a narrative. 
right? The Bible tells us a story. It's a bit of a different story. It's a story that reveals God and his purposes through poetry, through prose, through proverbs, through historical narratives. It's a story that reveals the God that we need to know to know how to live into the purposes that he has for us. It's a story that tells us we are unique, but we should never put ourselves above others. It's a story that tells us if all of our plans aren't placed under God's master plan, they'll eventually come to nothing. It's a story that renews our minds by showing that everything was made by and for King Jesus, and it draws us into his story. And for that reason, it's so important for us to have our own stories guided by the narrative of Scripture. Because if we're not guided by the one true story, we will become susceptible to false stories. Again, the midwives are a perfect example of this. They knew the command of Pharaoh to kill the innocent children of the Hebrew wives was part of a false story about the way that the world should be. Right? They, their minds were shaped by the true story about a God who cared for and protected children, and so they lived in light of that true story because their minds were shaped by it, their hearts were shaped by it. And guess what happened? Through that, God worked out his purposes for the world. So in these two verses, we are encouraged to nonconformity, to the self-seeking ways of the world, and we're encouraged to conformity to the true story of God's saving purposes that he has asked us to be a part of. After these verses, Paul spends the rest of the chapter describing um, in some very practical ways what it looks like uh, to live out this life of a renewed mind, of a transformed mind. He spent, he, it's beautiful. I, pray, I hope that you will engage it on your own time. Read through the rest of Romans chapter 12. It is an, it is an amazing exploration of what it looks like to live out uh, a life as a renewed person in community with others. Because it's hard to do that. And Paul has some wise things to say. But for the sake of time, I'll just summarize a couple of points, important points that Paul makes in the rest of our reading today. The first is this. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Right? He's going to go on and talk about different spiritual giftings. And he starts like this. Don't think that you are more high than someone else. He says that we should actually think of ourselves with sober judgment. Here's what he means by this. God has given each and every one of us certain skills and gifts, each and every member of his body uh, certain skills and gifts, but those gifts are given by him to help build and strengthen his church, not to build our egos or our agendas. There's no gift that one Christian has that can be said to be better than the gift of another. And if we ever find ourselves thinking about the gifting that we have in that way, we need to repent. Now, here's why. Because the gospel has made us all equals. The gospel has made us all equals. Because no matter how skilled or how rich or how smart we were, we could do nothing about our separation from God because of our sin. We could do nothing about that. So when Jesus comes to die for humanity, he puts everyone on equal footing. It's why Paul says things like, in Jesus there's no Jew or Gentile, there's no slave or free, there's no male or female, there's no more hierarchies. You're all on equal footing because of what Christ has done for you. Right? The gospel brings us down from our social stratifications and challenges our egos. And that leads to an essential truth about this whole thing. God has called a people, plural, persons, to be willing and available to him. Right? My calling to be used uh, for God's purposes is not separate from your calling or your calling or your calling or your calling. God has called a people 
together to be those who are available and willing for his purposes to be worked out. Now, of course, our individual spiritual lives are very important, right? What we bring when we come together because of how our spiritual lives are informed as individuals is very important, but it comes to its fullness when we are together as the body. And we must never forget that we depend on each other as we seek to follow Jesus. I've just finished reading the Lord of the Rings novels, which, are very, which is a very long uh, fictional fantasy series, by, very famous, written by J.R. Tolkien in the 1930s. And it's a very epic journey for the salvation of Middle-earth. This is the land in which all of the characters live. And towards the end of the book, there is a beautiful scene. After the ring has been destroyed and the Dark Lord Sauron's power has been broken and the darkness over the land begins to subside and all of the characters realize that, that victory is theirs and that Middle-earth will survive and that they will have freedom. There are these scenes of glorious and joyful celebrations. Wizards and hobbits and dwarves and elves and men and women all come together and celebrate their victory over darkness, the victory of salvation. And what is so beautiful about the scene is that they are praising each other for their valiant deeds. Dwarves are praising elves, and elves are praising hobbits, and hobbits are praising men and women for all of the good that they have contributed. They realize that all of them contributed something small to this great and difficult victory. It's a beautiful image, and it's an image that I think should make us think about that day when our king returns for his people to cleanse the world of all evil, sin, and death. I think we will be singing each other's praises, each other's valiant deeds, thanking God that he taught us all how to be willing and available to be used for his glory. Now, this is all, this is all about desiring God. This is fundamentally about desiring God because you can't desire God's purposes to be worked out through you if you don't desire God. I want to close with a prayer written by a spiritual giant of the early 20th century, uh, A.W. Tozer, and I would just ask uh, that we just take a moment of silence and then that you would pray in silence with me. Oh God, I have tasted your goodness. And it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need of further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire. O God, the triune God, I want to want you. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me your glory, I pray you, that so I may know you indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Then give me grace to rise and follow you up from this misty lowland where I have wandered so long. In Jesus' name, amen.